This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this uh, program, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm Mike Usim. I'm here with my colleague and good friend, Ann Greenhall, and uh, we are Leadership in Action. And uh, with that, Great. I do want to bring on our show now our guest, uh, Scott Cowan. Scott, I think we've got you on the line. Welcome to Leadership in Action. I'm delighted to be with uh, you and Ann tonight. Thank you. So, Scott, I'm just going to offer one or two words about you. You were president um, of Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, You served for uh, for quite some time, from 1998 through 2014. And, Scott, I do make note of the fact that it included a a certain year when a certain hurricane named uh, Katrina uh, did um, hit your, 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 your city and your school pretty hard. We're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about a new book you have out, um, and I'll mention that as we get into it in just a few minutes. Um, But, Scott, maybe just as a quick summary, you've thought a lot about leadership. Uh, You've led. You've been a university president. You've been a dean of a business school. Uh, You have a book on leadership, and I believe now you are actually teaching an undergraduate course at Tulane on uh, the Mythology and Reality of Leadership, if I have the right title. So, Scott, uh, once again, welcome to our program, and I'm going to plunge right in. Good. Thank you. Scott, uh, we tend to be on the more personal side in this program as we uh, talk with people like yourself about uh, your leadership journey and how you learned to become a master of um, the several universes you've been involved in. And let's go back uh, some years when you were moving into the deanship at Case Western Reserve University of the business school, most business school faculty, um, got a couple in this room right here at the, at the moment, <clears throat> do not aspire to become deans. Thank goodness uh, <laughs> others have. What what led you to put up your hand and show a willingness to take charge as a dean of that business school? I have to say, first of all, it was quite a surprise to me uh, when I became dean uh, in 1984. Um, I was 36 years old. I didn't really have any aspirations of being dean, um, and uh, the position came open. And several of the faculty nominated me. I had been associate dean before, and they had nominated me for the job. And uh, I said, well, if they do a search and I come out as the best candidate during the search, I certainly would be honored and considered to do it. And the provost went and talked to all the faculty at the school about the search process and the kind of person they were looking for. And much to my surprise, Mike and Ann, uh, the faculty was virtually unanimous that they wanted me just to Hmm. simply be the dean. And I would have to say, uh, even to this day, it's hard for me to believe um, that they did that, because I wasn't prepared in terms of experience, um, both as a, an administrator uh, nor as a leader necessarily in the academy to take on the deanship. But the fact that my colleagues really supported me in that position 
sort of empowered me to say, well, they're seeing something in me that perhaps I'm not seeing in myself, and I will go into that particular position, which I did. And, of course, I then had a 14-year run. But one of the lessons I learned from that, because my students asked me, when is it that I knew I wanted to be a university president? And I said to them, never. (laughs) It was never a goal to be a university president. It was never a goal to be a dean. The only goal I ever had for myself, besides just being a very good academic, was trying to make a difference in the world and finding the right place for me to make a difference in the world. It turned out for me, it's different for everybody, that being dean of that school at that moment in time in the 80s and the 90s was the right person Mm -hmm. for the right time. It turns out, ironically, um, that uh, being president probably of uh, Tulane, especially at the time of Katrina, I was the right personality at that right time. As I tease everybody, the only thing I'll ever be known for, I'm the master of disaster. Okay. <laughs> disaster, good. and I'll fix it for you. Normal <clears throat> times, I don't know what to do, but a disaster of crisis, <laughs> yeah, I know good. what to do. Excellent. Uh, well, that's maybe the most important time to know what you're doing, so thank you yeah. on that. Scott, let me back up and ask a couple of questions about that visit from the provost, or maybe you were in the provost's office. You're hearing that you're the guy... And how long did it take you to to digest and come to terms with that? And then in preparation to uh, take the baton, so to speak, from the prior dean, what steps did you, at age 36, put yourself through to be ready for that moment? Well, a couple of things. I, I think the most important thing I did, and it was really one of my donors who actually did it for me, He happened to be the single largest donor to the Weatherhead School. Matter of fact, it was Mr. Weatherhead. Mm. And he was a graduate of Harvard. And he said, what I would like to do is to take you up to Harvard for two weeks. And I want you to meet the dean of the business school there. I want you to meet the president of the university. I want you to meet the head of development and really the heads of all the functions and spend a couple days with each one of them uh, learning about what they do at Harvard and how they do it. Not that you would replicate this at the Weatherhead School at Case Western, a different institution, but these are people who have been highly successful in the context in which they existed. That turned out to be eye-opening for Mm. me. It really did. Just sitting with people at an institution like Harvard, it could have easily been Penn or any other excellent school, but it happened to be Harvard. And what's probably more important is – All of those people that I met with became mentors for me the rest of my life so that I could call them any time if I had a problem. So that was one. The second one was I was asking myself the question you asked me, how do I prepare? So I decided to reach out to five university presidents in the United States and ask them to be a mentor to me for two years. Uh, And once again, uh, Harvard was one of them. Um, I asked the provost at that time to be uh, one of my mentors, Harvey Harvey Feinberg, who uh, went on then to head up uh, the National Academy of Medicine, Um, and then four others. And I said to them, what I would like you to do is to meet with me three times a year for the first two years, and then simply be available to me thereafter. And I said, the first thing... I'd like you to tell me is, is what books should I read that might prepare me to step into this job? And that was task number one. Task number two is, what is it that I should expect to accomplish in my first year? 
and they helped me with that. And by the way, the advice was very interesting. They said, really, in the first two years, let everybody understand who you are as a person. Open yourself up personally to them. Let them know what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, what pleases you, um, what you think about various topics. Let them know you on a very personal level. And the second thing is learn about the history of the institution. Don't jump into that organization and just say, I have a vision of what it's going to be and I'm going to change it. Come in and understand that institution was here 150 years before you ever came. And there were a lot of people know who they were and what they accomplished. And that was the first year task. And then the second year task was to begin to tra- begin to think about what should the future of Tulane University look like. So I would say those two activities, spending an intensive period of time at Harvard and having those mentors in the first two years were invaluable to me. And once again, those mentors were available to me all the rest of my life. Uh, and we're very, some of them were very helpful during Katrina, and there were others that I brought in Katrina to play a role with me after Katrina about how to envision the future of Tulane, given that it was almost destroyed. And we understood we couldn't come back the way we were, so what should we come back as? So this notion of reaching out and, and, and having, I guess, the humility to be able to reach out and say, I need help, I have a lot to learn, teach me, mm-hmm. those were the things that were critical those first couple of years. Scott, I want to remind our listeners that uh, we are in conversation with you, Scott Cowan, former president of Tulane University, now on the faculty. And this, of course, is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. Um, And if you want to actually join the conversation, I hope you will. You all have thought about how colleges are run, uh, how business schools uh, might be managed as well and well beyond. Give us a call, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Scott, a final question for me, and I'm going to pass it over to Anne. I was in conversation earlier today with a person who two days ago stepped down as a chief executive of a large company. And she said, of course, when she took the job some years earlier, uh, she had not previously done that job, almost by definition. A few people will move a CEO from one company to another, but most come into the position um, as you came into the presidency at Tulane without having served as a college president elsewhere. And what I, I guess, in effect, signify by that is you have to learn a whole new set of functions. Working with trustees maybe at the top of that list, you've got to worry about the athletic director, alumni, and issues you haven't had to previously uh, take on and be very good at question is, how did you learn to quickly embrace these other areas that define uh, leadership in its full sense as you became president at Tulane? You know, that's a very interesting question, Mike. Um, I think it was my preparation at Case Western Reserve University. Case, at the time I was there, and I was there 23 years, was a very decentralized organization, every tub on its own bottom. And therefore, our school you know, had all the function as a university would have for the most, but at a much smaller level. So first of all, I, I understood how to run an, an almost autonomous unit to deal with everything from admissions to development to academics right across the spectrum. 
Number two is is we formed during my time at at uh, Case Western a number of relationships with arts and sciences and the medical school, the engineering school, and social work and law. And we had developed a series, and this now I'm talking back in the 80s, of programs with them. So believe it or not, I actually had a working knowledge of at least those mm. schools, having worked with them for many years as a dean. And in fact, at one time, um, the president of the university had asked me about whether I would be willing to go over and head up the medical center. And I said, no, that, you know, I felt that was, you know, above my a pay grade, so I wouldn't do that. But I think he asked because I had worked with the medical school, I had worked with the nursing school, I had worked with it. So in many ways, that really provided me the preparation. The second thing was, then the only thing was really athletics. And, and I actually was an athlete in college. So I went into it understanding athletics, big-time athletics. And I think that really, really helped me. Plus the notion that once I got to Tulane University, that first year, as I said, I listened and learned a lot. Um, as I did, I think, all 16 years I was there. I'd like to believe that, at least. And that really helped. So I felt the Case Western really prepared me for for the task of taking on the broader view. Now, it's ironic, I'll stop with this story, is when I was at Case Western, um, the president at that time said to me, listen, Scott, if you're ever going to be a university president, there are two things you do not want. <laughs> you do not want a medical school, and you do not want Division One athletics. <laughs> well, obviously, I didn't listen to that part of the speech because right. I got both of them, and I understand that, and I write about it in, in my book. I also had exposure that I actually had been offered two presidencies prior to Tulane University back in the 90s, early 90s, uh, both of which I was offered the job, turned it down, and had decided that I would not want, I did not want to be a university president. But going through the interview process for those two positions were also very helpful to me in my preparation going to Tulane and, and being able to deal with the you know, the breadth and depth of functions you have in a major research university. Scott, it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. And I I smiled at Mike's opening question and smiled even more broadly at your response because your response reminds me of something that we say here in the leadership program, and that is, and Mike, make sure I've got this right, but number one, to be a good student of leadership. So one of your tips was to read books. And I, I would like to know what one book stands out for you, but hold that thought for a moment. The second is to surround yourself with um, colleagues, peers, mentors, people who can advise you. And the third is to embrace that stretch experience. And you did all three <laughs> in moving from uh, Case Western Reserve to Tulane. And then your response, I thought, was just so wonderful, you know, what prepared you. And I think, like, note to self for all of us, uh, all of us listening, that we may have experiences that are maybe microcosms of a future macrocosm. So everything that you experienced at a smaller scale at the Weatherhead School of Management, you were, you were able to bring to bear later <laughs> at Tulane. And you took the chance and opportunity to work collaboratively across boundaries. 
And, Mike, we had a former dean here, Pat Harker, who used to say that leadership always happens in the crevices, the in-between mm-hmm. spaces across mm-hmm. across schools. So so just thank you for that. Um, thank you for that response to Mike's question. And maybe if I circle back, is there one book that really stands out uh, in your early reading? You know, uh, and you'll be probably surprised when I say this, but uh, to a certain degree, the Bible. Okay. You know, mm. I think the Bible in uh, in certain ways is an excellent um, uh, document to read, um, both Old and New Testament, about leadership, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, <laughs> and I can't say that I've read all the Bibles from cover to the end, but enough to say that I often, you know, uh, mm. reference it. I really do. Mm-hmm. Gardner's work I've always been very impressed by. Um, And then, you know, people like Warren Bennis, uh, his work I have been impressed by. So other than the Bible, no one stands out because I've read most of them. And and it wasn't my field of study, per se. I mean, you know, by background, I I have degrees in economics and finance and accounting. That's Mm -hmm. what I have. Uh, So what I learned about leadership was by doing, by reading, by learning from others, um, and I would say the the other thing, Ann, which I didn't mention, which was a great help to me, was my experience in the military. Yeah. Um, I served in 19, from 1968 to 71 in the military. And, you know, I grew up. I mean, if, if I reflect back on my life, there's about three things that define what I am today. And one of those experiences that was that three years where I became what I consider from, from a boy to a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that also helped me. That put me in situations that I had never been in before, and I was able to cope and uh, with them, and that gave me the confidence to begin to challenge or take on additional challenges as I went through my career. Mm, very good. I was also wondering, just curious, you, you were an athlete mm. at, in college. What was your sport? Uh, football. Football. Um, oh, yeah, Mike, no, we I, opened mm. with football. <laughs> yeah, Who knew? Now, I must <laughs> say, I mean, uh, I was not mm. distinguished in football. I, I, I went to, for football, and there, there's a funny story about that, which, you know, if we have time later on, I will. But just the mere fact that you're playing at that level um, and, uh, you know, also helps you an awful lot with leadership skills and understanding who you are you know, what you can handle, what you can't handle, mm-hmm. and how to dif- do, you know, to deal with adversity when you have it, and you have it a lot in sports. So yeah. And what position? I was, I actually was recruited as an offensive tackle okay. by Lou Holtz, by the way, mm. the famous Lou Holtz, mm. um, and I wound up playing defensive end. Oh, very good. Oh, thank you so much. Mike. <laughs> All right, Scott, uh, I am totally intrigued by the title of your recent book. I'm going to read the subtitle to get it going, though, How Visionary Leadership Can Transform Higher Education. And that's probably an account of your own leadership at Tulane and elsewhere, but also you reference a number of other uh, academic leaders who have made a difference in their institutions. But to come to the title of the book, I'm going to ask you to explain it, Winnebago's on Wednesdays. (laughs) I like that, too. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's there's an interesting story, so I'll tell you the story quickly. Uh, my first year as president of Tulane was 1998. And uh, lo and behold, uh, after the first eight games, Tulane University was undefeated. <laughs> and we were ranked, I think, number 11 or 12 in the country. And we had a football coach who was in his second year. 
So after the eighth game, he came to see me, and he said, listen, I'm being courted by another other, a number of other colleges and universities to become their head coach, and I just want you to know that. And I said, listen, you know, I understand this. You've done a terrific job here for two years. Uh, we want you to stay here. We are prepared uh, to address any issues with your contract, those of your assistants. Um, we will take care of it. Um, so please don't take another job unless you talk to me. And he said, I will not. I give you my word. So we play another two games, and we win, and we're 10-0. and <laughs> And he comes to see me, and he said, I'm, I'm here to tell you I'm taking another job. Oh, oh gosh. And I said, I, I don't understand. Uh, two weeks ago, we were here, and you told me you wouldn't. Where are you going? And he told me it was one of the schools, by the way, that is actually playing in the college football playoff this okay. week. Okay. Um, <laughs> So that's where I'm going to be head coach. And I said, well, how much money did they offer you? He told me. I said, I will offer you this much more. And, he, and finally he said, well, listen, this is not about the money. I said, what is it about? He said, it's about Winnebago's on Wednesday. <laughs> and I said, I don't understand. What, what do you mean by this? He said, I have to go to a college where they're so excited about football that people come to campus on Wednesday in the Winnebago's and start the party for the game on Saturday. It's wonderful. Yeah, that is great. And that moment, <laughs> I realized if I ever wrote a book on higher education, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's so great. So I love I, I love the metric. Uh, Scott, before we leave that as a metric. Hello? Yeah. Yes. Scott, we got you. Okay, Where's he's going to be right back. Uh, but let me just... Um, ask you, uh, and this is going to put you on the spot. Yeah, that's okay. Is there another metaphor that comes to mind on helping us define what we're trying to achieve? <laughs> Winnebago's and Wednesday is pretty hard to top. But... Well, I have a follow-up question <laughs> yeah. for Scott when he gets back, okay, and that good. is, I'm wondering if the his coach stayed. Because Winnebago's <laughs> on Wednesdays, Wednesdays is a matter of culture, Right. And we know how challenging that is to change culture. Scott, great to have you back on the air. I understand we lost you partially, but really good to have you back. And you were about to tell yeah. us what happened when a coach, after uh, being up on the season eight and zero, eight wins, no losses, saying he wouldn't leave without letting you know, uh, he came in when it was 10 wins and no losses two weeks later to say he was taking a job elsewhere. So if you would pick up on that. We've been speculating here in the studio as to what happened and where he went if he did go. So he, he did leave in 1998. He wound up going to Clemson University. <laughs> okay. But when, he made, when he made that statement that it's all about Winnebago's on Wednesday, I thought it was in many ways the most absurd thing I had ever heard, but also <laughs> the most clever thing I had ever heard. Mm -hmm. And I said to me that that day, that if I ever write a book on higher education, <laughs> I'm going to name it Winnebago's That's on wonderful. Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Now, if we could just flash forward to about two years ago. Uh, I had sent the book off to be reviewed at the Princeton Press, and they had called me and said, listen, we like your book an awful lot, but we were very concerned about the title. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, we have a dilemma because I love the title, and I'm not so crazy about the book. And, and we, we all right. laughed about it. Uh, and I said, I really like the title. It's important to me, and it does talk about the absurdity and some of the things that have happened in higher education over the last 20 years. 
So they agreed, and they were terrific. They said, well, listen, let's get the book reviewed, uh, and it reviewed very, very well. And in the very end, he said, what we do is we give the book to an esteemed group of Princeton professors, and they will opine on the title. <laughs> and uh, he came back after all of that and said, you know what? They all like the title, so it's yours. <laughs> so I love I'm it. glad it's I great. kept it with the Winnebago's on Wednesday. And Scott, I'm going to just make an editorial comment on that and then pass the baton here over to my colleague. Uh, if a title can't be remembered, the book will not be read. <laughs> right, so exactly. That is, yeah. uh, as I came on the book a while back, and I'm thinking, whoa, uh, the title is intriguing, <laughs> and I'm never going to forget it. So congratulations on a great title. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and I, I said to Mike as we were transitioning, that what I rather like about it is, it, to me, it speaks about, it speaks to culture. And after the colon yeah. is how visionary leadership can transform higher education. So, you know, having having a culture, it's one thing to say, it's another thing to do. And how do you influence and change uh, change culture? And I think that your the second half of your title gets to that visionary leadership. And that was always the intent. I mean, the reason I wrote the book, quite honestly, is and, and I don't know about the two of you, Mike and Ann, but when I came into the profession 40 years ago, being in the higher education, what is was one of the most revered sectors of the United States that you could be in, where you were well-respected. If you were a professor, you were well-respected. Uh, you know, it was obviously a few years after uh, World War II, but nonetheless, it was highly regarded. So now fast forward to today, where you have 60% of Americans have deep concerns about higher education, where the criticism of higher education has never been more severe than it is today. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it isn't that some of the criticism is not valid. Some of the criticism is valid. But the fact of the matter, if you step back from that criticism and you look at the impact that higher education has on communities and individuals in our country, it's still very profound, mm -hmm. not just financially, but also in terms of health, wellness, and what happens to our communities that we live in. So this dichotomy of, you know, it, it, it offers terrific returns measured in different ways, but people don't feel that, you know, that we're responding quick enough. And the fact is there's terrific stories going on of change all the time. And I think the rate of change is going to continue to increase over time. Um, and that's what I wanted to do to say, yes, we have problems, but they're being solved and they'll continue to be solved. That's why we've been around for 400 years or 500 years. And most businesses you and I know have never been. So just, and I don't want to detract from our talk about Katrina, yeah. but just in a nutshell, from your experience, what would you say are the chief problems? I think of the expense of higher education comes to mind. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely sort of number one. Uh, the number two, and, and you could probably put it as, is that in many cases, uh, higher education has exacerbated issues of social mobility. Um, you know, the haves and the have-nots in higher education. Um, and I think we should be engines of social mobility as much as we can, both the elite institutions as well as other institutions. I think that's an issue. So the notion of diversity, inclusiveness, I think, uh, is something that we have to take more seriously than we have mm -hmm. before. The third is, I, I wonder, we're getting so competitive, Anne, mm -hmm. that we're, we're competing on things like dormitories, and climbing walls and amenities that, quite honestly, don't account for the great education you get. It really is the faculty mm -hmm. and the interactions you have with it. 
So I wonder that whether we're not experiencing, if we will, we're trying to sell students on an experience Mm -hmm. of amenities as opposed to an experience of expanding the heart and the mind while you're in college. And I worry about that. So those are just sort of three or four quick ones that that I think of right away. Uh, But, you know, the cost is is clear, and that ties in with social mobility issues as well. And it also ties in with the experience, because some of those amenities um, do cost. They do cost money. You know, I I used to, uh, when I was Mm. president, always speak to uh, prospective students and their parents. And I would get asked the question uh, a lot, you know, why is college so expensive and I would explain it and then I would say the other problem is parents they would all look at me and say why and I said well what if you came to our campus and we had shoddy dormitories or or we had large class sizes or we had that I I think you would say I don't want my son or daughter to come to this particular institution so your demands or your expectations of us uh, is 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 very very significant and the other is um, more and more Young people are coming to college with problems, drinking problems, drug problems, mm-hmm. um, and psychological and emotional problems at a faster rate than ever before. And, and we are expected to deal with all of those issues while they're there. Mm-hmm. So if you look just at the, the cost of wellness in college, to mm-hmm. tend to the multiple needs of students, it, it's escalated tremendously over the last several decades. Great response. I remember a time here, Mike, mm-hmm. when... Our dorms ha- had no air conditioning. <laughs> we can't have that now. <laughs> no. So, Scott, uh, I've got a kind of a follow-up, and a uh, call it a tough question as follows. We uh, ran a program here a couple of years back for uh, senior administrators in higher education who would come here for a week and think about their management and their leadership. And I'll never forget one person when we, as an assignment, asked uh, him to sit down with three or four colleagues in the program and work out a map for changing the institution in some definable way uh, around some concern that that he had brought and they had brought. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, that's kind of an odd question because we got our model right at his university in 1820, and he can't see uh, much need to change anything at all. (laughs) And to me, it pretty much summed up a mindset that that I share, which is that uh, we've created the model, it's pretty good, and the problem with that kind of mindset, and I'll I'll say I'm I'm part of it, is that it's also an enormous kind of um, almost like a flywheel that resists changing direction. From your experience at Tulane, what does it take to move heaven and earth? (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Mike, because what I always say when I talk to audiences is that the more successful you are, the more likely the seeds of your destruction are being sowed. <laughs> right? I mean, because Sorry. you get arrogant. Yeah. You get, and listen, you, the three of us together, as a former business, we could name business after business at one time were the, the, on the top of the mountain and don't even exist today. And part yeah. of it was their own arrogance. <laughs> that can happen to universities as well. Yep. I mean, it can. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I worry about that. But the question you asked me was one I think about all the time. Um, That is, is what conditions have to exist in order to truly transform an institution? And and obviously, when there's a bona fide crisis, uh, you know, a hurricane, uh, whatever it may be, an earthquake, you know, that's a bona fide uh, 
moment in time where you can transform because you don't have a choice. You have to or you won't survive. The question is, absent that, uh, that bona fide crisis, what condition has to exist? And that's where you have to make the case. The case has to be made is why does change and significant change has to occur? It can't be just because I'm president and I want to see something different. No one will listen to that. <laughs> but if there are facts and figures so you can build the case for change, and that is difficult to do in the short run. There are very few, and you may have other examples, of university presidents that I know of that have actually transformed an institution in less than 10 years. They have been on mm. their way, but have really transformed it such that it's institutionalized. You can make changes, but we all know you have to build up political capital while you're at the institution. You have to prove yourself and so on. So it really takes somewhere between 5, 10, and 15 years for true transformation to happen. And the conditions have to be there, and the conditions are, what is the case for change? And then do you have the quality of leadership, not just at the top, at the board or presidential, but throughout the institution that buys into the narrative that change is important and the facts are there. If they don't, no matter what you try, it just won't work. That's my, mm -hmm. my view. It just won't work. Um, Scott, what does so, the role of funding play in that? What funding does, I'm smiling in when you say this, when I was a dean, um, you know, I always had a reputation, deservedly or not, of being a good fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And I used to say, as long as I'm raising money, faculty will put up with anything I say. <laughs> if I stop raising money, they won't. But, it, but money does, it creates, you know, a condition mm -hmm. where resources are coming around to support things. But they still have to be, I think, things that the faculty and staff and students and parents think are important, um, as opposed to just raising money for money's sake. So I, I think the ability to attract resources, either through fundraising uh, or through grants or other mechanisms, is an important part of it because they have to fuel the engine. But it, it still takes time. You know, if, if we put our heads together and think about it, as, as you know, I, I've written in my book about the University of Pennsylvania, um, in my book. Thank which, you, by the uh, way. Uh, well, it's it, all complimentary. It deserved it. I, uh, you know, Judy Roden, I think, played mm -hmm. a very pivotal part in that, and I'm sure Amy has as well. Uh, but it, it was an institution that made some, what I consider to be very interesting changes that continue to accelerate the respect, uh, the prestige, and the feeling towards the University of Pennsylvania. But, you know, You've had long-term presidents there for the most part, especially the last two, yeah. and that makes a difference. So I think you've got to make the case, and the case has to be, a, you know, uh, really communicated with and discussed with and bought in by key stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scott, I just need to break in for just a second to express to our listeners uh, that this, uh, to tell our listeners, this is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. And Ann Greenhall and I, I'm Mike Hussein, are with our guest, Scott Cowan, president, now emeritus, which means he served and is still affiliated with the institution, and uh, distinguished university chair at Tulane University. And Scott, as we begin uh, to come near to the end of our time, I did want to take a couple minutes and bring our listeners into uh, a couple terrible days in August 2005 as the <laughs> infamous 
Category 5 Hurricane Katrina sweeps in. It was forecast, but I think its destructive powers were not uh, appreciated as they should have been in advance. And as I recall, you wrote an extremely interesting article in the Chronicle of Higher Education not long after that about um, the fact that you were in your office when it hit and you were there without a whole lot of food or anything else. So if you could just pick up the narrative on what you did, and then I've got a couple questions about that. Sure. Well, um, the hurricane, actually, we knew the hurricane was going to make landfall um, in New Orleans the Saturday that first-year students were enrolling in the institution. So all their families and the students were there. And I remember doing a convocation where I had on Bermuda shorts, a T-shirt, and I got in front of all the students and their parents and said, listen, you know, welcome to Tulane University. We were founded in 1834. I went through all the bit. Uh, you know, we stand for this. We stand for that. And by the way, I now have to ask you to go home <laughs> and leave. And I basically, it was very short, 10 minutes. And uh, thankfully, we had buses available to take students out of uh, Louisiana before the storm hit. And everyone else left. So what was left then was a, a, uh, a, skeleton, a skeleton crew that had been decided in advance would stay in the case of every hurricane. In my case, I decided to stay on campus. Um, that's been debated. There's been case studies about that, whether I should have, whether I shouldn't have. But I did. Um, and uh, I would say to you, Mike, is after the storm fell through and I walked out on campus, there was no water. Uh, there was some damage to campus, but I had he- then heard a few hours later that the levees had been breached, and I understood the word breached. But within 48 hours, everything was flooded, including, you know, uh, all of our downtown campus, which was our medical campus, and three-quarters of our uptown campus. And, uh, and of course, there was no water. There was no power. There was no soup. Um, there was nothing. Um, I got out you know, through a crazy way, uh, ultimately hailing down a helicopter on the Mississippi River, and that's how I finally got out. Um, it, it, and I got to Houston, Texas, and um, when I really began to come to terms with what happened, and I remember calling my wife at the middle of the night, and I, uh, I was very, very upset. And I said, I have no idea what to do. We're, our, the city's destroyed. Our campuses are destroyed. Uh, you know, I don't even know who to call, what to do. And uh, and I said, you know, the institution's been around 175 years, and I feel so helpless. And, you know, my wife said to me, well, what have you always done in the past when you've been in a jam? And, and I said, well, I always make lists, starting with the simplest <laughs> things. And she said, well, you better start making lists. And by the way, that's what I did every single day for six months. Every day we start every day saying, what do we have to get done this day? And as you may know, we actually closed in the fall of 05, Mm -hmm. and we became the first major university to close for an entire semester um, since the Civil War, quite honestly. No one ever (laughs) thought we would reopen, or if we did, we'd be the shadow of what we were before. (laughs) And then it led to a recovery (laughs) that most people don't realize, which really took about eight to ten years. Hmm. Because what people don't recall is is yes we reopened in the spring of 06 but in the fall of 06 where we would normally have an undergraduate class of 1600 only 862 students came the following year it was about a thousand the following year is about it took five years to rebuild 
the undergraduate population. And of course, you know, once they're there, they're there for you know four years or six years. Mm-hmm. So it's not that it builds up. So it took us a long time to do it. Um, the other realization, I think, was the notion that um, we couldn't just reopen as the same institution we were before. It just wasn't going to work financially or otherwise. And this is another time I called on university presidents from around the country, about six of them, who came in the fall of 05. And I said to them, listen, I'm in the weeds every single day here. I'm just fighting for, for land for, you know, to survive to the next day. I have to have a plan and a vision for the future, and I can't do it. I said I have the outlines of it in my head, but, but I need help. And those five presidents, as, long as, as well as my trustees, put together with me and my team you know, something called the Renewal Plan, which was really a transformative plan for Tulane. Um, and I won't go through it. It was quite sweeping. And back at that time, it was the largest transformation of a university that anyone could remember about closing schools, opening schools, and a number of things that we did in a relatively short period of time. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, here we are 13 years later, and I would say this to you, and it's sad to say it, that New Orleans and Tulane are better inst- mm. institutions and city today than they would have been if Katrina never happened. Mm. That's a very sad thing to say, uh, because you would say, well, why, didn't you, why wouldn't you have done those things anyway? And the fact of the matter is you could have never survived if you tried to do them. Mm. You never could have. Yep. And, Scott, just to end on a final note, I know in your the piece that you wrote about your immediate experience that appeared in this a bi-weekly called The Chronicle of Higher Education. Yeah. A very important line that has really stayed with me personally, and that is after a day or so uh, when you were on campus of appreciating the enormous damage, you did say to yourself, I can sit here and complain about the damage, or I can take charge of doing something about it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, yeah, Mike, thanks for bringing that to my. I think everybody during that period of time um, had to say to yourself, do I stay or do I go? Because this is not a rebuild in a year or two. This, this is a life's rebuild, or it's a decade or more. And my wife and I had a serious conversation uh, because I had said I'd do 10 years, and I was already in my seventh year. And I, I was being courted by some other universities. Um, and my wife and I talked, and I said, listen, how many times in my life have I looked at the TV where there's been a tsunami someplace or there's been a disaster and I wish there was something I could do other than send in 10 bucks or 20 done? I said, this is our moment. This is our time. And, and I want to stay the course. And she said, I want to stay the course also. Hmm. And we have. And here we are. You know, um, <laughs> it's now 13 years later. Uh, as you may know, part of what I did was help to rebuild the public school system in New Orleans mm. afterwards, which I still work on today. Um, and I feel when I look back that I make mistakes. Of course, I made mistakes. Everybody does. Um, and, you know, you, you have some things you wished you had done differently. But when when the bell rang, I got up and I stayed. Mm-hmm. I didn't leave. And I think that really inspired others in the university to say, you know, the president's staying. He's rolling up his sleeves. He's going to do everything he can to help Tulane and to help New Orleans. And I'm just one of many people who did it. But, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, we talk about leadership. But modeling leadership is very, very important and the behavior you would like to see in others. But I had great mentors in my life who 
taught me about how to make a difference or try to make a difference. And I just felt the moment was there. And then, you know, for the rest of my life, I would keep working on this project. And that's what I've been doing. And I've gotten a great deal of personal satisfaction out of it. Scott, we're getting close to the end of the hour here. Mike asked me a really tough question at the opening, and that was, you know, looking forward Mm -hmm. in the new year, uh, what would you hope more broadly for leadership? You know, and what I would hope is is that we can find a way in the world um, to to disagree with civility mm-hmm. and with respect and try to find common ground based on facts and what's good for the entire world, the community we're living with. I'm so dismayed right now with what's going on, you know, nationally. Um, that uh, I think this is sad, and I think it's uh, it, it's not the way our country was formed. It's not the way we live our lives, I think. So the thing I would hope for is, is um, you know, I was reading not too long ago, Brett Stevens' article, The Art of Disagreement. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. read it. Yeah. That, that we could go back to learning how to disagree with respect and civility mm. and find common ground and remember why we are doing what we're doing as a university president or whatever, as opposed to our jobs. And there was one thing else I wanted to mention to you. People often ask me, um, what else does it take to be you know, a good leader in the university? And I think I really became a good dean, assuming I did. I, I let history model that, but assuming I became a good dean and a good president, it was only at the moment in my life where I didn't care whether I was a dean or a president. Mm. <laughs> so great. great. So great. Thank Scott, you. Scott, it's a good great note answer. to end on. I want to thank you in two ways, one very mm. personal and very briefly. Uh, as you probably recall, a number of your business school students, MBA students. And undergrads. Through an arrang- and undergraduates yeah. <laughs> through an arrangement with our president then, Amy yep. Gutman, mm-hmm. came and yep. spent a semester with us. Yes. I had a whole bunch of them and a couple of my classrooms, and they were terrific. So thank you for mm-hmm. loading them uh, 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 f- for the semester up here uh, as you rebuilt the institution. Uh, but, Scott, I really want to thank you more generally, obviously, for joining the program. You've written a great book, so thank you. And for those listeners who would like to learn more about you, in addition to buying your book, how might they find out uh, about your reign, uh, your various activities at the moment? Well, you know, basically, uh, you know, I, I think, this book, and there was one right before it called The Inevitable City, which actually chronicled the, the resurgence of Tulane and New Orleans. And in that book, I really put out 10 leadership lessons that I learned during that storm that might be helpful to people mm-hmm. as they think about leadership, both in, in difficult times and, and in normal leadership times. Um, and I think that tells, you know, my story as best I I can probably tell it. It's not a lot about me. It's not intended to be a memoir, but uh, but it does represent what I learned, you know, from the Katrina experience and from just being in higher education all these years. Scott, that's terrific. And Scott, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.